with Carmen Spaniola. Welcome to a special mini-series of the Numinous Podcast, Portrait of a Marriage, where we revisit a blog post I published in 2017 on resolving the traps of an anxious and avoidant partnership. In other words, a relationship where one partner, in this case me, a cis white woman, tends to have a more avoidant attachment style, and the other partner, in this case my husband Ruben, a cis white man, tends to express a more anxious attachment style. We're reading through that blog post and giving you updates on all the strategies we tried to earn the more secure attachment we have now. We'll be honest about what worked, what really did not, and we'll bring the article up to date to let you know where we are in our marriage now. Where are we? Are we good? Uh, in our marriage? Yeah. <laughs> better, better than we've ever been. Yeah. We often joke that we've had several marriages, and mm-hmm. I think this is like our fifth, fifth yeah, yeah, number fifth five. Marriage. We're marriage number five. <laughs> yeah, we've been married 10 years. <laughs> Five times to each other, it seems like. <laughs> Five times to completely different each other's. Yeah. Ruben, I looked up my stats in Medium. Mm-hmm. I mentioned in the last episode that um, this had been a blog post that went just on my old WordPress website uh, in 2016. And it was a rougher draft. And then it got sort of fleshed out and reposted on Medium in August of 2017, and it's had like 19,000 readers, which I know for a real writer, that's not that many. But for me, even now, even even as a published cookbook author, <laughs> I think 19,000 people reading that article and talking about it and having... You have not sold 19,000 cookbooks. I have not. I hope there's a very <laughs> long tail. People should buy the cookbook because, uh, you know, it, it is something that was born of our marriage. If I didn't mm-hmm. have the marriage that I have, I wouldn't have been able to write such a, such a beautiful and lush cookbook. It's called The Spirited Kitchen, by the way. Anyway, we're getting off track. <laughs> so... Before you start again, yes. I think uh, maybe we should have another cat update. Oh, yeah. Since last time Kat was snoring. This time Kat is, has decided she wants to be exactly right beside the microphone. Mm-hmm. So she's sitting on the table between us. Oh, now she hears she's her name and past. she's prancing. Yep, she's out of here. Anyway, okay. so All there right. could be background ambient noise. Uh-huh. We're trying to present secure attachment with Kat. Kat and has a very disinterested attachment style. Yeah, she's very avoidant. <laughs> so what I thought I'd do, Ruben, is try to help us get a little further into the article. So uh, I think this is a good place to pick back up here. We were talking previously about uh, what secure attachment looks like. Secure attachers are not highly vigilant in relationships. They expect and trust that their partners value and love them and are able to calmly move through conflict without catastrophizing or holding on to the past. They're good at modeling how to be relaxed in relationships. The qualities required to make other humans feel safe in relationships, that of being responsive, attuned, and available, come naturally to secure attachers. I think it's important to be conservative and recognize that there is a danger in labeling your partner by their attachment style. It can feel erasing and dehumanizing to be told, you're so avoidant, or stop being so anxious, as though that's all we're about. For other people, it can feel affirming to discover that your natural way of being is a legitimate thing with a name and research and literature, but we can think of attachment styles as either traits or states. 
So yes, we have attachment styles, which a lot of the literature will call traits, but labeling each other by them implies they are static, monolithic, and fixed. They are not. If we take a pro-relationship stance and choose to see ourselves and our partner as evolving creatures, doing the best they can in the moment, then we can cut them some slack for being in an avoidant or anxious state during a blow-up. Yes, we all have fairly enduring habits and tendencies in terms of how we relate to important people in our lives, but they are not rigid and immovable. They're less like the bones of our personality and more like our musculature. They're tough to change because the habits of thought, speech, mannerism, and behavior shaped by our attachment experiences are deeply imprinted on our psyche and body. But some researchers think of attachment styles as states that can change, sometimes dramatically, from relationship to relationship. With a parent, you may be more avoidant, and with your partner, you may be more anxious. You might be a generally secure person, but have strong feelings of fear and anxiety in an argument with your partner. So for the sake of clarity in this article, I'll be using terms like the avoidant partner or the anxious attacher, but I find it more helpful and it often feels more hopeful for my clients if I frame attachment styles as states. In my own marriage, we use these terms as shorthand, but we understand that we are more than our attachment style assessment results. Our styles have evolved to be more secure over time, and it's totally normal to enter states of anxiety or avoidance when intimacy issues resurface. So when you're just starting to enter the terrain of this conversation with your partner, remember it's important not to generalize too much. We're going to talk about that part, more sweeping generalizations and broad statements when we talk about fighting. Um, so we're going to get into the exhilarating highs and the terrifying lows uh, <laughs> when anxious and avoidant attachers come together. But I think that this passage, like if I were to update it, I wouldn't even talk about traits. I would only talk about states. Hmm. I would only talk about tendencies because it's just so evident and so clear how um, adaptable are and, and malleable our attachment styles can be. What do you see the difference is between traits and tendencies? So, so it's actually traits and states, I would mm -hmm. say, are the two things that I'm... And, and I would say states and tendencies are similar. So... Traits to me are things that are conditioned and uh, an almost autonomic response in our nervous system. You know, it, it is a trait similar to how fast our hair grows. <laughs> it's like, you know, or we have um, a certain body type. It's the same kind of thing to me. Whereas a state is responsive to the environment and can change pretty wildly moment to moment. And as it turns out, <laughs> attachment, <laughs> for a lot of people, I would argue most, um, is so variable because it depends on the relational field. It really does depend. There are very few people that I've ever experienced who, you know, if they have a fairly broad social circle or they know more than one or two people that they're interacting with, then they, they tend to have a fairly variable attachment style that depends on that relationship. As the social circle or the milieu gets more and more narrow or more and more intense and they have fewer people in their circle, it can seem like that's their personality. That's a trait. It's fairly fixed. But what I found is that as soon as they get exposed to like more secure people or other, you know, environments where they really do feel safe and seen, you notice pretty quickly that these latent parts of themselves start to flourish. So I think it's very environmental. Mm-hmm. 
that's my experience working with you know many many people and in both one-on-one -on -one and in groups um i just i think the data the science that they have used to determine like what is secure attachment i also think that's very white i think it's very oriented towards um almost like neoliberal polite white culture kind of stuff mm. um and yeah it's like very easy to have these styles labeled as traits and i think that's a little too deterministic mm. Yeah, so I, I guess um, traits and tendencies, traits and tendencies. Uh, I think that in my experience, the attachment response, whatever we want to like say, you know, avoidance is uh, a lot more predictable than it's just like, what's happening in the field right now? Like there's, it's like, it's this base setting modulated by what's happening in the field. Hmm. Um, so, you know, yeah, as we said in the last talk, under stress, we revert quite predictably mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to like a default setting to a default mm -hmm. setting. Yeah. And so I think that default setting is the, is informative, you know, and, yeah, and I don't it's want to say it's not compassion. For sure. I just think that a lot of the science that gets applied to adults was actually child, mm -hmm. um, studies mm -hmm. and extrapolated. And, um, and I just think it's too easy to go, oh, look, their environment growing up was like this. And so therefore they mm -hmm. are that. And I think people get pretty narrow in their thinking about that and mm -hmm. don't consider that, oh, but then all of this happened when you were an adolescent and all of that happened once you left home and all of this has happened, you know, in your twenties and thirties, all of these things are shaping mm -hmm. our attachment style. And so, although it, it's very helpful and yes, there's um, there's a fairly predictable pattern we can see, oh, your primary caregiver was like this, your nervous system has been shaped. There is autonomic shaping. I don't want to say that there isn't, but I think the language of trait mm -hmm. sounds, feels, is represented as fairly fixed. Mm -hmm. That it's a trait just like you have blue eyes and I have brown. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not like that. Yeah. Okay. Let's get into the fighting. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> This section is called the exhilarating highs and the terrifying lows. When an avoidant and an anxious attacher come together, it can be fraught. A roller coaster, a recipe for disaster, a case of chronic conflict, blissful union to train wreck argument in under a minute. Oh, it's disappointing when that happens. <laughs> yes. Violent arguing with draining, damaging efforts at, quote, communication <laughs> at all hours of the day or night. Emotional recovery for the next nine days, further scarring over the wounds. <sighs> it's been a long time since we've had those big, long, deeply scarring fights. It has been a long time, but I'm noticing your eyes are wet and salty. Mm. My nose is kind of getting tingly. <laughs> yeah. What are you feeling? Well, I just, I, uh, I was, you know, I, I don't have such a great head for detail, but yeah, I remember, I remember how long and painful some of those conflicts could be. And so that's what I'm getting salty about. Mm -hmm. um, I remember one time we were fighting, this was in North Van on mm. east second 
This is a long time ago. This yeah. is year one or two of our relationship. And we started an argument at like 1 a.m. <laughs> and by the time 3.30 rolled around, I was naked on the floor across the room, not wanting to come back into the bed and like shivering. My teeth were chattering. My fingers were blue. I was so like, I felt like a caged animal. I couldn't get out. I didn't want to get back into bed with you. But also I was like, oh my God, this is so dumb. Why are we still fighting? And I was, I, I remember getting back into the bed. You were like, Carmen, fine, I'll stop talking. <laughs> Come back into the bed. I got back into the bed and my teeth wouldn't stop chattering. I see now I was like physically cold from being outside, but my freeze response mm -hmm. was so intense. And you were talking to me being like, all I need is for you to hear this and listen. And literally it was like, there was no oxygen in the room and I started falling asleep uh -huh. and you got so mad. Yeah. You got so mad that it's like, it's like, you don't care about me. And yeah. looking back now, like neither of us would let it get to the point where one person's trauma response is so intense that their brain is turning off and the other person is like, I need you to hear me. You don't even care. Well, so that's the famous concrete box. That's Carmen's yes. famous concrete box. That's right. Um, and yeah, we don't, uh, uh, we recognize that now and it's not as triggering because we've, we understand what it is. Well, and I hardly ever get there now. Yeah, like so it's we been hardly time. ever get there. But even, even when we were getting there still, it was like, oh, okay, this is the concrete box. Well, there's right. nothing we can do about that. Mm -hmm. and we have so, to down tools on this <laughs> yeah. argument. I'll meet yeah. you back in whatever it was at yeah. the end of the day or tomorrow. Or... Mm -hmm. Then we also started to learn like, okay, we need to, you can only fight for so many minutes and then your nervous system is just not as effective at fighting anymore. So you have to mm -hmm. down tools, you have to shift attention and go to something else. And that's like one of the skills of self-regulation is just like holding that hot potato, even though you're still mad, mm -hmm. you're gonna like still be in solidarity or still be bonded, even as you go, okay, this, this matters, this is important, but we're not gonna keep arguing this point, we're gonna mm -hmm. come back to it. But for now, let's just finish making this omelet or breakfast or whatever it is. And you know, that's really hard. And stop trying to unscramble this omelet. And, yeah. Um, so this feels like a really huge and important topic, like this concrete box and mm -hmm. the understanding of what the concrete box is and that you can't, and that it's not a, um, it's not a moral failing on your part and it's mm -hmm. not a reaction because you don't love me, mm -hmm. you know, like so that it's, so I feel like that's a huge chunk. Uh, and with that, it seems really closely tied to co-regulation. And we made a big shift in our marriage um, towards being present to co-regulate each other. Yeah, and we actually at first needed to sort of be like, okay, flags, like send up a flare. And we were very kind of robotic about it. It's like, I need co-regulation. And then the other person would be like, okay. And we would imagine downing tools like our weapons and mm -hmm. putting on, I think, I think of it as the, the Teflon armor. <laughs> and it's like, I'm going to self-regulate because Ruben has said, Carmen, I need some co-regulation, which means I am fucking pissed. Mm -hmm. I am going to sling some arrows at you or mm -hmm. at the world or whatever. And I need you to not take it personally. I need you to just like hear me. And then mm -hmm. my job is to be like, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to self-regulate to the best of my ability. I'm not going to take any of this personally. I'm just going to like beam kind eyes. I'm going to try to move close. I'm going to lower my voice. I'm going to be like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm listening. What I hear you say is this. 
that kind of thing. And then if I start to get triggered because it's too many arrows, I have to be like, okay, so I'm getting to my upper limit mm -hmm. <laughs> and I love you. Let's revisit this in 20 minutes so that I can, you know, walk away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can go have a shower, whatever I need. And that was awkward and fumbling for a while, mm -hmm. but um, it was a really important pattern interrupt so that we didn't do that, um, you know, it, sensitizing, triggering word to poof, mm -hmm. like escalation, trigger to response ratio, way out of whack. And then hours and hours of trying to talk mm -hmm. our way back. Yeah. And we didn't do the um, arguing about every word in a sentence thing. Like the, the saying, I need co-regulation is just like, you shut up and listen to me now. <laughs> and then you give me warm co-regulatory mm -hmm. response kind eyes yeah. you work on your vocal prosody mm -hmm. and There's there was lots of the you know like that makes sense to me i can see why mm -hmm. that's so upsetting to you mm -hmm. i imagine that i would feel that way if we did a blah. lot of because i know you because mm -hmm. i know your character and so it was a lot of like reaching with my whole heart to your whole heart or your whole heart to my whole heart to be like this is just a little bean this is a little baby mammal this is a tiny tiger in front of me that mm -hmm. just needs me to hear them and i i don't have to take it personally and i don't have to fix it Mm -hmm. Even though sometimes I'm like, it's this, or I'm like angry. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it, it's been a journey to, we're, it's much smoother now, mm -hmm. but we did need to just be like, you know, ding, ding, ding. Okay, intervention. <laughs> this mm -hmm. is what we're doing. I need co-regulation. And that was like the code words. Mm -hmm. I need co-regulation. Instead of the other person being like, oh my God, what are we about to fight about? Which was my avoidant <laughs> response. Oh my God, what did I do now? Mm. Jesus. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, my, my person is regressing to a very angry state right now, or is not necessarily regressing, but I would try to imagine your inner little. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and I, I, as much as we tried to imagine the inner little, I think it would have been productive for, for us to do that way more, like to actually just really be consciously and deliberately looking at the other person as if they are a hurt child. Yeah. It took a like, long time to get to that Yeah, because we are our own hurt children mm -hmm. that are like angry and mad and sad mm -hmm. and hurt. Um, so it takes a while to develop the somatic capacity to presence your like wisest most loving self and like you know look at your partner as just a, a hurting child that that takes a lot of practice mm -hmm. yeah. but that's really like that's a lot of what's actually going on is behind all the words and the arguments and the justifications and the reasons and the door slamming and all of that is actually just like this kid like crashed their bike and skinned their knee mm -hmm. and wants to be like held yeah and needs the other partner better. to be like oh my god are you okay instead <laughs> yeah. of like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or whatever <laughs> instead of putting a video on youtube <laughs> yeah. okay back to the article anxious and avoidant attachers hook up all the time though because their wounds feed each other and affirm their existing worldview they may bring out the worst in each other but their malfunctioning dynamic confirms what they've long su suspected about themselves their deep-seated <laughs> fears of unworthiness 
which often originate in childhood and may have been compounded in other relationships, are perceived as the reason they can't find a stable relationship. Okay, we're getting to the juicy part now. Statistically, it is less common to have an avoidant wife and an anxious husband combination. Generally speaking, in Western heteropatriarchal culture, women are conditioned to be anxious attachers and men are conditioned to be avoidant attachers. But attachment style isn't entirely rooted in early childhood development or conditioning or trauma. It's also at least partially epigenetic. It's also at least partially shaped by our history of relationships in adulthood. And I would argue that it's also at least partially caused by living in a traumatizing patriarchal culture. Okay, I'm, I'm like downplaying this here. I, this was really at a point where I was just about to go insane or I had just gone insane and had like a major health crisis feeling suffocated and trapped under the weight of patriarchy. Um, so in other words, we are programmed and conditioned to be this way and it's not something that can just be turned off like a light switch. It's not easy to pivot, even when we know our behavior is making both of us miserable. I happen to work with a lot of strong women and sensitive men. More precisely, I happen to work with a lot of women who've survived both developmental and shock trauma and are regularly re-traumatized by li living under patriarchy and have developed a fortified stance in order to survive and protect themselves from constant threat to their very existence. I also work with a lot of men who survive developmental trauma, are regular, regularly re-traumatized by living under patriarchy, and have learned to sacrifice themselves at any cost in order to survive and maintain some kind of connection, no matter how meager, with other humans. Their experiences within the anxious avoidant trap in reversed roles, quote, reversed roles from assumed social norms are not as commonly reflected back to them in the relationship literature and research. It can be demoralizing and frustrating for everyone. All of this can seem like an impossible situation to reconcile. But does it have to be? I don't believe so. <laughs> um, Okay, I'm gonna read this last little bit actually. Okay. All of the literature says that anxious and avoidant attachers should steer clear of each other and avoid the drama in the first place. If only I were that great chemistry. <laughs> but what if you're already in it and don't feel ready to give up? Or don't feel you can throw in the towel just yet because of having younger children together or something else. Or maybe you have separated but you have children and still must work together to co-parent. Or maybe a psychic told you that this was the love of your life and you are mm -hmm. a bit superstitious about that. What if you're just, I didn't write that but for the listeners, just so <laughs> <laughs> what if you're just stuck with each other? I believe, no, I know that in many circumstances, the anxious avoidant dynamic can evolve to a more secure dynamic. I know that with compassion and a top down bottom up approach, we can work together to support aliveness, fulfillment and connection in our relationships, no matter our attachment dynamic. So I think I'll share, I want to share about my health crisis. So uh, I was already doing attachment stuff. We had already done NVC, Imago, like all we had, we were on our third couples therapist by then. <laughs> um, and I did not feel like I could 
get through to you on certain issues without feeling like you were minimizing what I was saying or being dismissive or equating our two trauma histories. <laughs> like, well, we're both traumatized people. That was so frustrating for me because there was all this power that you held that you didn't think you did or couldn't see. And any time I would get upset or I would like need attention, I would be mad or whatever, I would know that I would, I would then have to caretake you for days sometimes. If I got mad, if we had an argument, I was always gonna end up apologizing to you. Even if I was very justifiably <laughs> the person harmed or the person who should be upset, I would somehow always end up apologizing to you. And mm -hmm. I could see how this was patriarchy. I could see how this analysis was happening. But here you are, a sensitive 90s guy, <laughs> that is a you know maybe not proclaiming yourself a feminist but presented as like the more reasonable emotionally intelligent the calmer one like all these things it was so frustrating and really one day we had a huge argument and i was so exasperated at feeling unheard that I started to, at first I thought, I think I just need to cry, but then I couldn't sort of catch a breath. And I was like, I need to go for a walk because I'm so exasperated that I actually can't catch a breath. And as I was walking, it got worse and worse. And I started to think I was having a heart attack. And I knew, knowing about panic attacks, I knew I wasn't having a heart attack, but I also didn't know I wasn't having a breath. Like I honestly was like, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. And I walked to our friend Brooke's house and sort of calmed down and was like, okay, I, I do think that was just a panic attack. That's so weird. <laughs> you know, the, the anger I was feeling, I, I honestly thought I was gonna die. I came home, we were talking, we were resolving, and then it started happening again. And I could feel that like, I can't, I can't breathe. My heart was like in my throat. And then I started to, um, it was like I was on a boat and I, my, everything started spinning and I couldn't stand up. And it was just like, oh my God. And this was vertigo. So you got me onto the bed and then the, there was like, it was like an ax hit me across the forehead and there was such piercing pain in my prefrontal cortex that I was like, I'm having a brain aneurysm. I am definitely dying. And you were like, I was laying on the, the um, bed and very difficult time saying words to you. And finally I was just like, call 911. Like, I really couldn't understand what was happening. I thought I was having a brain aneurysm. I thought I was dying. And I remember there was two things that happened. Our neighbors had a very loud, like vintage car with a very loud muffler. And while we were waiting for the ambulance to come, that car came and it, it was like this feeling of dread came over me, right? I felt, I, the closest I could say is like, I felt pursued. It mm. was like this ominous sound. Mm. And then right after that, the 
ambulance came and the ambulance was backing up and you know the backup beep every time the beep went it was like an electric shock in my brain in my eyes and um you know they came in and basically were like you have vertigo and maybe some anxiety and i was like are you fucking kidding me that's it and i couldn't they were like eh, you know you could go to the hospital and like have a you know heart your heart checked out or whatever but um, i was like well what can i do for the the um vertigo like i didn't want to go to the hospital with vertigo and they were like we can give you some you know anti-nausea medication in the butt <laughs> and i was like okay give it to me because i just wanted to be knocked out so that was the first time that I had this trifecta of the, the intensity of the stress and the futility and the hopelessness and the sense of being trapped just like caused everything to burst. And I had this trifecta in the course of about 90 minutes of um, a panic attack, vertigo, and then a migraine. And that the, the lingering effects of that carried on for a few months. I did go to a vestibular specialist. He was like, he put the goggles on me and stuff. And he was like, well, like most women, you tend to underreport your pain and stress. And I was like, I don't think I'm underreporting it. I'm fucking telling my husband what I'm upset about and what I need. It's that I am screaming into the void. And as soon as he does get it, I didn't say this to poor vestibular guy, but it was like, I realized <laughs> as soon as you would actually really be able to hear the depth of my pain, you would collapse. And then I would have to take caretake you. And I was just like, I'm so fucking exhausted. I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I can't do this anymore. And um, that was really awful. That was really awful. And pretty much from then on. And I was like, fuck this. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not gonna, and it's taken a few years. There's, you know, it took a, a while to stop doing that thing where I have to be absolutely broken in order for you to listen. I'm just not doing that anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm not like, nope, <laughs> I'm not, I don't let it get to that point, but also, um, yeah, I'm just gonna cast about elsewhere. That's, like, yeah, that's several years past. It's several years past, though we did have something fairly recently. We had an, a money argument two weeks ago, mm -hmm. and same kind of thing happened where I had expressed, like, so I'm anxious, I don't like how this feels, could you help me out in this way? And your anxiety kind of spiked, and um, you were like, well, you know, if it's really serious, and I was like, wow, okay, so I explained this and this and this, but I had to kind of recognize, like, okay, so I'm not going to re-explain how bad it is for me. I'm going to take that elsewhere because I'm not going to break in order for him to be able to help me. And also, he's so fucking burnt out right now that he just can't. If he was well, he would be like, okay, I believe in you. Yes, here you go. And we would share in that kind of way. But I, I, there two things needed to happen. I needed to say... I'm not going to like convince him how anxious or stressed I am so that he can step into like a savior role and feel edified in his role in our relationship as, you know, the ballast. And also he's not 
good right now and if he could he would so i had to also recognize like it's it's okay this isn't a thing that we need to um it doesn't have to be a thing in our relationship i have more resilience and resource right now and relative to him i i, I can handle this hmm. so it's it still comes up sometimes where i'm like hmm how much do i throw to him if he's giving me like mm, you seem okay i i I'm not going to do that thing where I'm like, you're not listening to me. You're not tracking me. Here's all the ways in which I'm not okay. I'm, I, I definitely am like, hmm, okay. So that is the limit to whatever, to patriarchy, to his nervous system, to whatever. And I, I don't take it quite as personally anymore. Whereas before I was like, fuck you then. <laughs> you know, I was really yeah. like, see, see. And now I'm like, uh, I can take the contextual cues <laughs> and apply them much better. So, but generally speaking, yes, it's been a long time since um, I had to have like a nervous breakdown or a physiological break uh, before you were like, hmm, my wife is mm -hmm. trying to communicate <laughs> with me. What was your experience of like Carmen is breaking down and telling me it's because she's so frustrated with me? Well, I don't remember like, um, three years of pandemic between <laughs> now and, you know, like, I, yeah. So we actually, you and I entered pandemic in a pretty good state mm -hmm. and worked very well together, mm -hmm. uh, through pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, so cause we thrive in collapse. <laughs> yeah, babe. Yeah. It's like, I was like, you're so awesome. You're so sexy. And you were like, you're the best. Yeah, it's, I wouldn't say thrive, but we, yes, we had um, unfair advantage because yeah. we were so prepared psychologically. Um, but yes, we worked great. So, you know, so I'm trying to remember back, you know, like, uh, this must be like five years ago or, or something like that. For and, sure. And, oh no, it's longer than that. Yeah. yeah so this my, was like 2016, 17. Right. So my brain is not remembering that. Like I, I do remember that. Um, but I, I guess I remember that, but it seems kind of all of a piece to me and I don't really remember sort of stages or thoughts or anything. You know, this seems very much involved with the sort of co-regulation thing that we were talking about, that it was just, it's kind of like a, uh, we entered a state of just stopping arguing and just listening and believing. Well, I had gone to do my training mm -hmm. in dynamic attachment repatterning, yeah. which is somatic experience, uh, experiencing based attachment work with Diane Poolheller. And we went to one, I came back, we were really connected. And then that kind of faded. I mm -hmm. was like, oh, I, I didn't consciously think this, but I was already sort of formulating like, oh, look, <laughs> me presencing secure attachment and doing all the things that he wants me to do isn't magically getting him to hear me. <laughs> like I, something else is needed here. And so it would fade and you would get like, that would be like, I took all the oxygen away. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, I came back from dare training, doing attachment training. I presenced all this stuff. You were like, Oh my God, this is so great. Um, but there came a point where I was like, Ruben, you need to get your own therapist. You need to go to a group thing with men. Um, and you need to make friends 
fucking hell, make some fucking friends because you need other people to help expand um, who's holding your emotions with you because my strong feeling was that a lot of your own unmet contact nutrition needs were being projected onto like our sex life and this high desire, low desire thing. And in the end, it was like, oh my God, it's not fucking that. And so you did do that. Mm -hmm. You went to, what happened first? I think first we we did the thing where I helped find some therapists for you. I was like, here's five <laughs> therapists, start at the top, move your way down. We are couples therapists. We also asked her for a referral. So you saw a couple of therapists. One of them referred you to the men's friendship group. You also took Unlearning Patriarchy with Barry Bear. Do you want to talk a little bit about, like, maybe maybe you could start with the men's group? Um, yeah, you know, I can't even remember the first therapist I was seeing. Some guy. Oh, uh, he was out in Sydney. Oh, yeah. That guy. That guy. <laughs> Uh, and it's interesting because I hadn't gone to see Bear. So Bear A. Bear did the Unlearning Patriarchy course for men. But this was a couple of... That was of, during pandemic. That was so during pandemic? Yeah, okay, yeah. so this was several years before that. Mm -hmm. But I was already having a difficult time finding uh, counselors or therapists to work with who were talking about patriarchy. Mm -hmm. um, which felt very limiting. <laughs> So, yeah, so that guy, you know, I saw him a few times. Wait, we forgot. Uh -huh. The very first thing mm -hmm. was bell hooks. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Okay, yeah. so the very first thing before it was like <laughs> I had said, you need to do these things, which mm -hmm. takes a while. Uh, but first you read, and then I read uh, The Will to Change mm -hmm. Men, Masculinity, and Love. Mm -hmm. And one of the incredible things about that book. Uh, is, you know, it's talking about how patriarchy hurts men as much as um, women or in different ways, but certainly in very particular ways. And that if women want men to be more emotional, they have to tolerate men having emotions. Mm -hmm. And I was so burnt out mm -hmm. at holding your emotions and felt so like, oh my God, I've been waiting all this time. And well, yeah, okay. I wasn't holding your emotions very well. I was avoidant, mm -hmm. but I felt like I'm constantly coddling. That's yeah. what I felt like. Yeah, yeah. I constantly have to, I have to manage his emotions because mm -hmm. if, if we're not having sex enough or we're not, if I'm not a certain way, he's mm -hmm. going to be pissy. Yeah. And that's a kind of emotional labor that I just didn't have the tolerance. I didn't yeah. have the compassion because I wanted to be heard. And so that's why I was like, Mm -hmm. let's do this. I'll mm -hmm. go to my therapist and my supervisor. You do that. Um, and I had to do a lot of work on um, learning to be a better feminist in the sense that like, I had to allow you to actually have emotions, but I just didn't have the bandwidth for it yet. Mm -hmm. So the book came first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, foundational to all of this is The Will to Change by Bell Hooks. Everybody should read it. Yeah. All couples yeah. of any gender. Um, because all of us have been conditioned by patriarchy. Mm -hmm. um, so there was that. And then tell us about going to the men's, m learning how to make friends group. So I think this was a, I think this was after the first actual real counselor guy, mm -hmm. um, who that first guy was, he was a somatic experiencing practitioner. Um, but I just experienced it as being kind of more like talk therapy, mm. which wasn't 
what I was looking for. No, we didn't want that. Yeah, so um, I uh, stopped going to him and was looking around, and yeah, I don't, I, I don't know where we, where you heard about this. Did you hear about it? Or did I hear about it elsewhere? But anyhow, uh, I started seeing guy Maddie Maddie Davidyuk, mm-hmm. uh, who at that point was, you know, maybe he still is. He's moved um, uh, up island a little bit. Um, so he had toolbox counseling, um, and he was working with men. Um, and wasn't like patriarchy wasn't everywhere, but he's hip to it, (laughs) you know? So he wasn't like, I, my impression was he wasn't, um, pushing it on every man who walked in his office kind of thing. Mm. Um, but when I was talking about it, he was right there and knew what I was talking about, Mm. which was amazing. Um, and what was it about patriarchy when we're saying like, we're talking about patriarchy and I'm saying patriarchy was in our marriage. How would, how would you explain that to someone who's like, what do they mean patriarchy? Well, like you're the person who would be best to say like, here's what Ruben was doing. That seems really like patriarchy to me. But for me, um, having the like just always remembering that uh you grew up in this world (laughs) in which you were just you had constant demands made on you for your time and attention and your body and your uh sweetness and you know all of this like you you just had these expectations like without rest, mm-hmm. without ever having a rest. There's no break. There's no vacation. Like that. It was just like this ever present. And I guess it's interesting because it's the water, like I, you know, maybe for some women, it's the water in which they swim. But for you, it was like swimming in acid. <laughs> and so you were very aware of the water in which you swam. And like, I think that had become conscious for you in recent years just a few years before we were going through this like where you'd really dug into that um but it was torturing you at this time and so for me to understand like just always kind of keep trying to um bring in the lens it's like yeah we're doing we're doing this and this and patriarchy (laughs) you know so it's just like for me to always just keep trying to apply and bring that into my understanding you know my like what is Carmen going through right now what is Carmen feeling you know Carmen is reacting like this what might be causing that (laughs) you know so every time I was doing something it's like oh Carmen's having difficulties with work and patriarchy, you know, oh, Carmen, you know, went out grocery shopping and patriarchy. Like, so just always trying to bring that in and layer it on. Um, and yeah, not a lot of counselors for men add that lens. No. So. Yeah. There's a quality when I'm thinking of how patriarchy shows up in a marriage, the typical marriage, you know, there ours is, was more typical maybe than it is now. Mm. Um, but there is, as you say, an unceasing service to the male gaze and um, the limited capacity of uh, tracking, (laughs) you know, it's just, that's like constant and unceasing, but also the invisibilizing of power and influence and um, pressure. 
So I think of it as pressure. There's this constant pressure that if, if you don't have any idea you're applying it, it gets applied even more and mm-hmm. worse and it, it, it exacerbates things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's like, as a young girl, you are conditioned to the male gaze, you internalize it, it, it creates all these other problems. But then you get into marriage and you recognize, oh, okay, so we're about to have an argument and you do not recognize that you are up power and I am down power in whatever it is, whether that's money, whether that's um, sex, whether that's, uh, you know, how we split the household duties. You know, if a, if a man doesn't recognize the second shift, you know, of, of doing the emotional labor of like tracking everything in a household and how exhausting that is. And, um, the emotional labor of like teaching someone how to treat you is so exhausting. And that's patriarchy. I learned that from Tiffany Joseph. I just want to shout her out again because she was in an early episode of the Numinous podcast. And I asked her like, what's it like? What's reconciliation to you? And she's like, it's basically, you're asking me to teach you how to treat me. Mm -hmm. Tiffany Joseph is an indigenous woman. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, fuck. Mm. You know, and so that's what I experience as a woman trying to teach someone that they are in up power and I am in down power and it is pervasive everywhere. And when I, you know, come back into my home from the world, I just don't have it. I don't have the energy to Mm -hmm. explain to you all the different ways that I experienced pressure or dismissal by men Mm -hmm. in the world. It's just everywhere and then when you like go to express it to your partner and they downplay it or minimize it or about what someone else has done to me let's say that i just yeah that's anathema i couldn't handle that it's like no Mm -hmm. you need to be on my side here like but then having it happen inside an argument or inside a conflict Mm -hmm. um, was very difficult and i'd been doing so much of my own therapy around um sexual assault as a teen multiple times and then as a emergent adult you know at 23 i experienced rape and so having somebody pressure me about all the demands on sex was just and we started off we said in the last episode like we had a very um active and very enthusiastic sex life Mm -hmm. and then at some point I needed it to evolve and I just got tired of performing siren or performing, um, you know, ravenous partner. And that was a difficult transition Mm -hmm. for both of us. So that's what we're talking about. Patriarchy (laughs) is a lot. Okay. I'm going to get back to the article for one you more part. You asked me to talk about the friendship group. Oh, the friendship group. Thank yeah. you for reminding me. Go ahead. Yes. I think it's very um, important for people to know that there are, is such thing as a group for men to go learn how to make friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Maddie, <laughs> so, so I was seeing Maddie one-on-one and, um, he was like, Hey, you know, I also lead this, uh, friendship group for men at the citizens, citizens counseling center, which is like a, I think it's free. I can't remember. It was maybe if it, if there was a charge, it was nominal, like $25 or something for 
eight weeks. You it's know. a nonprofit where the counselors can get a, they can become therapists, licensed therapists. by Peer counseling, right? Yeah, but they are doing this because they're getting training to become counsel, registered mm -hmm. counselors and therapists. And so they volunteer their time mm -hmm. as a quote unquote peer counselor, but they're getting trained mm -hmm. to be a therapist. The, the co-leader of that group, I, I didn't get that impression that he was he on, wasn't on that track, track to do anything, okay. you know, so he just seemed like someone who'd been doing this for a long time. Like mm. it was kind of a, a vocation maybe mm. or something. Um, so Maddie was like, you know, I lead this friendship group and I think um, it would be good for you to go. And I was like, <laughs> you know, like, like why? Like I have a friend. Um, and, but, you know, basically I was like, well, it'll make Carmen happy if I go. So I went and, uh, and it ended up being incredibly emotional for, you know, ways that I didn't expect, but basically it gave me an insight into, uh, men's lives that I hadn't had before, which gives me insight, for example, into the boys who bullied me when I was a kid, you know, just like the um, really, really shocking, you know, that we like, so we had a, we had a class on how to shake hands, you know, which I, I can't, I had never considered and still can't imagine how much you have to endure in life in order to not be able to shake someone's hand. Enduring like violence and yeah. threat. Violence, threat, abuse. Mm-hmm. So there was some men in that group that had just suffered like daily, daily things that I can't imagine. Daily beatings. Yeah. Beatings, abuse, belittling, like whatever, you know, they, they, well, they didn't share, nobody shared like great particulars. But it was also like, so when there's someone who is like, it's like, oh, wow, obviously they have been very abused. And they're like, I won't, you know, I won't talk about that. And they kind of look off in the distance. It's like, oh, fuck, mm. that was bad. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, just insight into the kind of um, default extreme violence that these men had lived through. And so they were coming to a class to learn how to trust other men. Yeah. Like to be in a room with men who were going to not be that, you know, mm -hmm. and who would want to have conversations with them and shake their hand and, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, be warm. So, um, did you feel out of place or did you feel, uh, resonance or what, what did you feel? Yeah, you like, grew up with like, you know, your parents, your dad was cool. He, he helped you pierce both of your ears when mm -hmm. you were 12 years old. Yeah. And, you know, this was in a small rural Canadian context. So there were lots yeah. of bullies, mm -hmm. but you did have a loving home. Yeah, I certainly did not experience. Yeah, I, I experienced nothing like some of what those men experienced. Um, but I imagine that the people who bullied me did. Mm. Um, so that was a real insight. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and that they had shaped that experience, you know, turned it around and re-expressed it. Mm -hmm. And that that <laughs> uh, was masculinity. Uh -huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that ended up being, you know, I didn't, um, uh, I didn't come away with new friends from that group. Um, and I, I don't know that I learned any new skills, <laughs> uh, but I did have an amazing, an amazing experience. Uh, not really a good amazing, mm -hmm. you know, but I had, it was very educational. Mm -hmm. Like I learned a lot and I, you know, I, educational sounds like it's in my mind. It was very educational in my body. I learned a lot. Yeah, you came home tearful oh, yeah. every single week. I came week. home wrecked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It gives, I think, not to be like um, punitive, but it, I think, does give you an insight into the kind of masculinity that I grew up around. Mm -hmm. And um, now you're six foot whatever. You know, if somebody was to like, bump your shoulder or something walking down the street like it just wouldn't happen that often like you have a certain kind you're there is a certain armor um whereas uh you know as a as a woman going through the world especially as a fiery woman like myself that can end up you know pretty dangerous um and the reason i bring that up is because that is a kind of somatic knowing and a somatic bracing that was like hard to impart to you mm -hmm. when it was like time to like, okay, now let's be soft with each other. <laughs> it's like, there is a, a level of bracing against misogyny, patriarchy, um, objectification, minimization, belittling, all of that, that just like calcifies mm -hmm. inside and, um, mm -hmm. you know, could become a trigger point. One of the ways that you coped with being, bullied was to be smart mm -hmm. and, and sarcastic wordy. wordy and sarcastic yeah. and um you're, you're good at belittling if you have to mm. you know and um i'm just good at being like a cage fighter because i was raised with more of a like at any moment you will have to like physically defend with loudness and bigness and beating at the chest and mm -hmm. um you know smart too but mostly just threatening and intimidating mm -hmm. and so that was like a really bad combination. Yeah. It was really bad. And so this is where we come to the, um, it's a top down, bottom up <laughs> kind of thing. Okay. So let's, let's do one more section of the article okay. to understand how to evolve an attachment style. We need to understand trauma and the distress cycle. Top down refers to the messages sent from our brain to our body when we perceive a threat. These messages impact our emotions and ability to feel sensation. Top-down relates to perception, memory, motivation, and attention. Our thoughts and judgments, our identifications and awareness, all affect our nervous system's capacity for self-regulation when the sense of threat appears. Bottom-up refers to the unconscious, involuntary regulation in the nervous system and how it impacts our cognition. Dysregulation in our nervous system affects our emotions and thoughts, masking some threats um, to, be appear, to appear larger than they are, sorry, making some threats appear larger than they are, and amplifying the alarm bells in our mind. Bottom up 
is about the felt sense, connection with the body, instinctive impressions mediated through the brainstem as they move upwards from the body to the limbic and cortical areas of the brain. Attunement means to focus caring intent on the body, mind, spirit, and emotional needs of ourselves or another. When a threat is perceived, either through misattunement, neglect, or conflict, information travels from the body to the brain and from the brain to the body, sending distress signals. When misattunement continues, despair sets in. This creates a disconnect from the original need and a focus now on the emotional distress that comes from judgments and perceptions about why the misattunement is happening. This is where beliefs form about our worthiness and lovableness. As the misattunement and distress persist, we begin to lose our capacity to self-regulate. We adapt to scarcity and we begin to identify with longing but not having. Our identifications during these times of distress help shape our adaptive coping strategies. We might develop a shame-based adaptive style where we feel shame at existing, like we're a burden and don't belong. Anxious attachers will often feel needy, unfulfilled, undeserving, used, hurt, rejected, or unloved. Or we might develop a pride-based adaptive style where we feel pride in being a loner, in not needing others, and in not being emotional. Avoidant attachers often feel strong and in control, and that if they don't look out for themselves, no one will. They take pride in being self-reliant and independent, can be intolerant of flaws or mistakes in themselves and others, fortified by a mask of having it all together, and they like to ensure that they reject first. <sighs> I mean... I have a soft spot for folks who are avoidant attachers. Mm -hmm. I really do because I, uh, well, obviously I can smell my own and I know how that feeling is when you're like, oh, wow, no one is coming to attend to my needs. So I might as well just turn the signal way down on my needs. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, yeah, you don't know that you have needs, <laughs> you just don't, and you don't get the signals. I probably, if I'd had any attunement to myself, I wouldn't have had panic attacks, you know? Yeah, I have a real soft spot for avoiding attachers too, Carmen. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, it's like, there's like three more problems than anxious attachers have, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, like with anxious attachment, there's a hope that what they say is vaguely approaching what they need. <laughs> you know, yeah. like there, there's probably a bunch of echoes and backlash effects and stuff like that. You can't really trust everything that comes out of their mouth, but it's like, <laughs> but they're basically just saying, like they're saying, I need. Yeah, I know? need. And they may not be accurate about what it is they need, yeah. but they are accurately reporting that they need. Yeah, and Whereas, they may be very inaccurate about what it means if their needs aren't being met. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, what were we going to say? Uh, whereas avoidant attachers are inaccurately saying, I don't need. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, first you have to break through that concrete box. Mm -hmm. And then we had to jumpstart your bodily reporting system. Mm -hmm. And then we had to get to meeting the needs. Yeah. So you had to do a lot. Of, so you learned about patriarchy and that is 
enabled you to be like, okay, so I do need to presence safety. Mm -hmm. I have to be a safe person for this woman. Mm -hmm. Before the concrete box, before there's any hope of the concrete box coming down, mm -hmm. you, you had to feel to, safe. You had to release pressure on me, stop all kinds of pressure, and just bring the contact nutrition and mm -hmm. just bring the unconditional love and like pretty much subsume your needs for a long time. Yeah, listeners, was, dear listeners. It was two years to start. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, before it, I would kind of think of it in like six month chunks, like, mm -hmm. okay, I can do another six months. Mm -hmm. Not so, that just uh, also, dear listeners, it's mm -hmm. not that we weren't having sex. When yeah, I no, say take well, off pressure, we I mean were, all kinds of pressure. We were going on picnics and, you know, like we had a fully functional and joyful life. Yeah, there was romance. There yeah. was like enjoyment. We weren't miserable all the time. Mm -hmm. But there were these like ways in which I would feel pressure mm -hmm. or I would feel frustration. And you had to really not bring... A lot of problems to me for yeah. a long time. Well, yeah, and it was really comprehensive, right? There was mm -hmm. like a there was a year and a half where I never asked you for sex, and yeah. we only made love when you initiated. Yeah. Um, and there was like there were good chunks of time. Like often it would be like maybe you'd go to therapy and you would discuss uh, sexual assault, mm -hmm. and for like months afterwards, I would be really ramping up the sort of like safe touch like mm -hmm. not being sexy with you in the kitchen <laughs> you no, know? or like yeah um, no body jokes if i yeah. hadn't like invited that yeah b-a-w-d-y yeah yeah not b-o-d-y <laughs> yeah no body no jokes. <laughs> saucy jokes yeah no saucy you know? jokes like no kind of inference yeah. stuff no subtle sideways things mm. no kind of random boob grabs or whatever yeah. it would be you had to be very attuned to what i was mm -hmm. working through and, but then also just, um, you know, safety in the, uh, what you were talking about earlier. So again, um, I'm super burnt out and, uh, it's really hard for me to track thoughts over time, complex Timelines. thoughts. Mm -hmm. So like the amount you read is five times more than I can keep track of. So mm -hmm. as I'm trying to, um, respond here, it's like, I'm, I can my my mind wanders away mm. so um can you feel my feet on your feet yes i can can you see my eyes looking at you no because my eyes are closed There was lots of other just trying to presence safety, like in what you were speaking about earlier of the pressure, just kind of like the ever present pressure of patriarchy mm -hmm. to just try to, and, and I can't remember that particularly well, but lots of it just like um, not arguing about things, um, which, so that's something I wanted to say about that last chunk you read is that. Um, the thing that, like, if there's one thing that really stands out to me, it's that the argument is, it's just never about the words. It's almost never about the words. Like there is something like you would get pissed about there, the house was a mess and you'd get angry about it, but 
what that is is the distress call that it's like i need mm-hmm. and so you know my reaction is like uh either to placate you and be like oh it's not that messy look we did this look this isn't so bad over here well, i did or, this yeah or to fight and be like well it's your mess like mm-hmm. look at all this shit that you've left out <laughs> you yeah. know so or all you of could those... say that in a different way yeah or yeah like why don't you just stay on top of things and i'm happy to clean like i was mm-hmm. always like i'd love to do a 10 minute tidy up every day you know and could never get the family on board with that and so like so then i would just like like jumping into that fight mm-hmm. of reasons, mm-hmm. you know, and that's just the wrong thing to do. It's not about reasons. It's about need. Yeah. There's nothing logical about yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. And so there was huge parts in this kind of trying to be safe for you where you would be blown up about something. And I would just be like, this is not about reasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this is about need. And so I would just try to be present and calm and validate and be like yeah that really makes sense you know mm-hmm. um so yeah I, I can't remember i know there was other kind of strategies that i was trying to do as well to just really uh tone down that reflex the trauma response mm-hmm. in you mm-hmm. um at least within our household Mm-hmm. But you were also doing a lot of then self-regulating because when mm-hmm. I get upset, that triggers your yeah. insecure attachment where you're like, oh my God, she's leaving me. We're breaking up. We're, you know, yeah. like our relationship is more precarious than I thought it was. And then instead of me having to go and tend to you, mm-hmm. it took a couple years of me being able to trust that like, okay, I don't have to take care of Ruben for three days and like coo at his amygdala yeah. several times a day just to bring our relationship back to where it was just because I got like overwhelmed by the dishes or yeah. whatever. And yeah. so this that was, was a lot for you. It was, it was a heavy lifting. And I was thinking earlier when you're describing the dynamics of fighting, how, uh, we would fight and then you would have to caretake me. And yeah. one of the things that I was remembering is that, uh, I would almost never bring anything up with you because as with an anxious attachment style, I was afraid of you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's like to bring up something with you that it's like, Hey, I really don't love how this is happening here in our household. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously that would lead to a fight and you would shortly leave me. <laughs> <laughs> right. That <laughs> you know? would, yeah, you would, you would be setting off the time bomb, yeah. the nuclear, the atomic bomb of and our so, relationships. So and so then we get into fights and of course I'm filled with resentment and frustration about all the things that it's like, you say you want this, but you're not doing this kind of thing. You know, it's like all of the resentments of life. And so we get into a fight and I couldn't contain that. I, I couldn't regulate myself through that. <laughs> and so then you know, obviously against my better interest, uh, I would bring my complaints to the table when you were mad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah. And by the end of it, you needed to, uh, coddle me. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so that's previous, that's previous to this, you know, that was sort of the dynamic previous to this sort of couple of initial couple of years of just trying to present safety where, yeah, I had to really self manage. Yeah. And you you did that through, like you did more therapy. Mm -hmm. You did start having man beers where you and three guys would go out and just talk about stuff. And, um, 
definitely like increase the priority of like getting away, going on canoe mm -hmm. trips, like yeah. just having a more emotionally rich life yeah. with other people that weren't me. Yeah. And, um, and also you learn a lot through osmosis by what I teach, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Through the secure course, you came to my attachment for parents workshops yeah. and stuff. And it's really hard to, you can't attend an attachment for parents workshop and not bring your own childhood to the table. Right. Mm -hmm. So there was yeah. a lot, there was in the early part of our relationship, you were like, Oh, I had a perfect childhood. I don't really remember much before I was eight years old, but my parents were ideal. I've never wanted to have kids, but it's because I was raised so great. And it really took a lot of years. And it was like after you'd gone to therapy that I finally was like, oh my God, yes, you do have attachment <laughs> issues. And for you to be able to really mm -hmm. look at the amount of emotional isolation um, you experienced growing up with parents who were very preoccupied with their own stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and isolated in the bush and isolated. Yeah. yeah. So there was, uh, there was a lot yeah. going on. I want to wrap up in a minute, but I also want to bring in a adjacent thing. So do you, do you want to make a point before I bring in the adjacency? Well, I was just going to mention in that time also is when I started spending time with the full moon. Oh, tell people about, yes. Okay. So I was like, I think you should go see our friend Shauna. Mm -hmm. Shauna Jans is an incredible uh, grief work practitioner. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I think you should take this patriarchal grief and pain. Uh -huh. And um, and also, I was trying to encourage you to explore like animism. Because mm -hmm. I kept saying, like, you are a woo-woo guy. You are an animist. You are, <laughs> you just, you can't learn from me, though. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be your spiritual teacher. And... Um, you went to Shauna mm -hmm. to talk about grief. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, well, I'm a recovering rationalist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but strong in that practice is the proceed as if, just like, what if we pretend that this is how it is? And so, yeah, I went to see Shauna and I talked about, you know, yeah, the environment and collapse and patriarchy and love gardening gardening soil. <laughs> yeah and uh shauna said i think you should take your grief to the garden and it just immediately i just immediately it immediately made sense to me that i should lie in the garden under the full moon and so that's what i did for I did that for a full year without missing a full moon. Um, so, uh, if there are no children in the room, I will share that I did it naked. <laughs> uh, so that meant in snow and in rain, uh, and in summer warmth, you know, I would, uh, get naked and go lie in our garden under the full moon. And it's really interesting, like, it's very interesting that you now teach the, um, the tremor. Mm -hmm. What is it that you call it? Therapeutic the, tremor. The therapeutic tremor. Because, uh, you know, when you're lying naked in the snow, mm -hmm. your body starts shaking. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just interesting to look back and wonder how uh, that, if that was a useful practice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um yeah. So, yeah, you know, my body would shake in the cold. I had this experience several times where it's raining and it's like, it's kind of like the sky is like, like 
rain tears are running down my face, you know. So it was a very um, uh, not just grounding, but embedding embedding practice in in the earth and the atmosphere and the weather. And then you would come back inside and have a bit of whiskey. And have some whiskey and have a hot shower and wash the bark mulch off my back. <laughs> After that, we started to do the ritual of the marriage moon together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, that meant that every full moon, we would have this like large piece of paper and it was like, here are the things that I would like. These mm -hmm. are the needs that I have. Mm -hmm. And I trust that if and when you have capacity, that you will fulfill these needs for me. Mm -hmm. And so that was a key part. It yeah. was like, okay, so we both have needs. These are important things for our marriage that we're both bringing. We're not necessarily going to get them met, mm -hmm. but it's you, me, and the moon. And all of us are agreeing that these are important priorities. And if we have capacity, mm -hmm. we trust that like that we will fulfill it for the other and we trust that they will do it for us and we would like throw that that prayer up to the moon and be like yeah. please help us so that yeah so it was basically like a bitch list like we both <laughs> just wrote down like everything that we were mad about and unfulfilled about right mm -hmm. uh but then we laid it aside mm -hmm. and it was like so we're gonna stop fighting about this mm -hmm. and what we're gonna do is once a month go back and read this list yeah and we're gonna <laughs> ask the moon yeah. Is there any movement on this that mm -hmm. we can do? And I remember one time we burnt something. This wasn't like the list that we were using every time. But remember one time we did a ritual where we went out and we were burning, mm. I guess, kind of the bitch list. Mm. And we put it in and the owl came uh, and flew yeah. over the flames. Yeah. So owl became, we already had owl as like a guardian for our marriage. Mm -hmm. But that was really powerful because we were like, okay, we're just like putting these resentments into the fire. And we're like asking the moon to bless our marriage again. Mm -hmm. And this this out we put um moonshine so we put our list in we poured moonshine over the flames went higher and the owl at that moment flew over and like landed in a, a, on the other side of the flames looking at us and like what kind of animal would fly towards the fire yeah. come on that was very much an auspicious yeah, thing that was very special um it was the ritual of marriage moon is how i started cooking dinner because right. you said in there that you would like me to uh, to cook three nights a week. Mm -hmm. um, Before that, I was the cook and you were the clean. And I was the clean, yeah. yeah. Um, there was like three things that were on the list that I was like, I can do these. Mm -hmm. And uh, then that was good. Yeah, it was good. Okay, before we wrap up, the mm -hmm. adjacent thing yeah. is I just want to circle back to when you were feeling overwhelmed by all the words and couldn't track it. First of all, mm -hmm. I want to say it's because it's very wordy. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I would uh, I would write that differently <laughs> if I were to go back over it. Um, it's not, I don't think that's useful for people who are in it, mm -hmm. you know, struggling. Um, but also what I want to say is I'm noticing how, like, that's an example of patriarchy that you can feel like, I don't know, like you feel enfeebled and it makes you feel vulnerable. And, um, and I see that as another way that patriarchy is cruel to men to like put your body through so much 
for so many years to truly sacrifice everything you have and then feel that you can't be tired or befuddled or overwhelmed after that there's like no place for you just is heartbreaking so I just want to say I don't care that you weren't following <laughs> what I was saying because it's not important and it wasn't very well written anyway but but it doesn't matter because um I know you know what you're talking about and it's okay to be tired I think people will really enjoy this conversation anyway that's probably yeah. the least favorite part of the whole <laughs> show the uh the burnt out brain is maybe not the podcast format is maybe not the best for the burnt out <laughs> brain um yeah it is uh you know i i can track much smaller chunks of text but that is not necessarily as interesting for the podcast listeners <laughs> if we have to interrupt every few minutes to make sure that ruben still got the plot <laughs> um but yeah it is uh it is patriarchy. I've been wrestling a lot in this burnt out period with productivity and my own, it, you know, as you know, I fundamentally consider myself quite a lazy person. And Which I'm, is hilarious. I'm always surprised when people tell me they think I'm a hard worker because it's like, I don't get anything done. Um, but yeah, but I'm usually moving Mm -hmm. and usually doing something mm -hmm. um and so to you know a, what i'm not is a very good uh a very good producer under capitalism i've never been strongly motivated by money or career or anything like that so i'm a i'm a bad i'm a bad employee uh <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's not true. I'm an excellent employee. Yeah, but I'm, like, I'm so a, you keep I'm talking good... and I'm like, he's not saying anything true because you work incredibly long. You're yeah. always moving. You work incredibly long days, but it's doing projects. It's ameliorating yeah. our life. It's like constant either handiwork or writing or you're yeah. fixing something for someone else and like late, you know, it's been a few years now when I've had to be like, okay, Ruben, I'm trying to have better sleep hygiene. I'm trying to be less of a workaholic. Can you not start projects at 9 PM? Yeah. You know, you yeah. work incredibly. So I, I'm not, I'm not a good producer under capitalism, but I've always been productive mm -hmm. for my own desires of what I, want to improve around our house or improve around our garden or you know like i've always been a producer in mm -hmm. our own life and yeah. so to lose that capacity too has been very destabilizing for me yeah yeah that makes sense to me and i'm also really happy to see you taking naps for the first time yeah. in the whole time i've known you yeah i know it's not under your own, if it were your choice, you would rather be outside, you know, gardening or something. But, um, yeah, you were working hard for a long time. And yeah. so it's like all of the rest that was needed to be interspersed is like your body is forcing you to take it now. Um, but I, yeah, I see how much patriarchy informs our standards of what's acceptable and how hard somatically difficult it feels like biologically wrong mm -hmm. for you to not be productive 
all day long. And yeah. it's hard to watch you struggle against that when yeah. I just want you to rest. Well, and I got to this state because of patriarchy within myself and within my workplace. Totally. So, um, anyway, out of those two pages of text, yeah. I did catch, as I said, but let me repeat, <laughs> the important part is, is that it's not about all the reasons. Mm -hmm. It's about the person is saying they have a need. Mm -hmm. And often that need is just to be like held and said, this matters, you matter. Well, and we'll talk maybe next time about needing and matching mm. because there was also a feeling where I needed you to like meet me. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my triggers is condescension. Uh -huh. And I would feel so condescended to, and you'd be like, I am the reasonable level-headed one and I oh. am co-regulating you. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh. So maybe next time we can yeah. talk about Wreck-It Ralph and um, how I needed you to like really meet me yeah. emotionally and not be afraid of my emotions that were like anger, frustration, and to actually like increase your range of capacity to meet and match me. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, that, that's a, that's a thing for anxious folks, right? Always wanting to like down-regulate, down-regulate yeah. and, um, the fear and anxiety about like, ah, explosive emotions. And so mm -hmm. that actually was like a two-way street. Yeah. I needed to be able to like be more predictable, <laughs> less of the like serenity now, serenity now, insanity later. Mm -hmm. And also you needed to be able to like upregulate and meet me and be like, oh yeah, that's frustrating without fixing it, just mm -hmm. being with me in it. So we can well, go into that's more an, detail. Another thing, yeah. Um, that's another thing that you presenced for a couple of years because, uh, you know, um, your explosive outbursts did lead to rip cords, you storming out, you know, threats to our relationship, etc. So like, you know, my anxiety had very reasonable and real uh scary precedent yeah for sure there and was so, definitely times where like we did separate yeah. for a week where i was like yeah. i cannot nope yeah. i'm leaving and we did yeah so yes there yeah. was precedent for so you took ripcord yeah. off the table yeah like, I, I was stopped. i was trying to you know presence uh safeness to you mm -hmm. and it took you know, it took a while before I was like, okay, I think maybe her anger is not going to end this relationship. Yeah, I stopped so. with the, uh, like, basically I was like, okay, I've decided. I flicked the switch. I'm not mm -hmm. going to threat. I, I will not be the threat to our bond. Mm -hmm. So even when I'm angry, I will reassure you that this is not threatening our bond. Mm -hmm. And no more ripcord, no parachuting out of this, no threats to leave, no looking at real estate at midnight, <laughs> imagining other life lives and where I could live. You know, I just had to be like, nope, this is it. This is my person. And I'm not going to undermine his sense of security in that way. Mm. Okay, Kat's starting to mule at yeah. us. She wants Kat us to really go. really wants to go outside. She's done. Okay, so <laughs> thank you so much, friends, for listening to us for episode two. Next time we're going to come back, we'll get more into um, actual self and co-regulation. Uh, I also want to thank all the people who have purchased the Spirited Kitchen. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't already, you could leave a review. That would be awesome. If you've already left a review, you could like buy another copy as a f gift for a friend. Mm -hmm. Or you could post a, that you're cooking a recipe or something like that. Um, anything you do to um, 
increased visibility of the spirited kitchen is absolutely it feels like life force to me much appreciated it's so appreciated at the spanderson household mm -hmm. and if you would like to dive more deeply i, I just want to say yeah. uh the spirited kitchen is all about attachment yeah um to people but also to place and to foodways and to culture and to ancestors it's attachment from the beginning to the end yeah without saying hey everybody has attachment styles it's yeah. like this is embodied attachment this mm -hmm. is implemented attachment this is how you do it mm -hmm. not just with uh your beloveds but also with yourself with your ancestors with the mm -hmm. land you live on with the season that you're in with the, mm -hmm. with the foods you're eating mm -hmm. thanks for the saying. language you speak yeah yeah yep. it's all in there it's the how-to for the entire wheel of the year yeah. okay and so yes if you wanted to take um attachment courses you could watch them with your beloveds uh you would sign up for the numinous network and access any of my three attachment courses so one is called secure the magical art and subtle science of attachment i go deeply into that that has like 10 lectures and they're all like over an hour long there's a ton of citations um, and q a's in there there's a short course called contact nutrition 101 which is really the building blocks of secure attachment when we're talking about self-regulation and co-regulation we're talking about contact nutrition and there is a how <laughs> five kind of basic things you can do and then there's a course on attachment for parents of teens. Uh, those are on-demand videos, and we also have attachment jams and contact nutrition drop-ins. We have live events that happen a while, uh, as well. Um, and the therapeutic tremoring, which you brought up, Ruben, that happens Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the Numinous Network. It's not just me leading all these things. There's about 10 of us guides. Um, and as I said, they're all part of the Numinous Network, my monthly membership subscription. And... Uh, Every month there's like 30 live events or more. In April, there's like 44. Sometimes it just happens that way. Uh, so it's all centered around cultivating secure attachment with yourself, with others, and with the more than human realm. You can learn more about it at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. We'll see you next time for the next episode. Till then, take, take care. care. <laughs> <laughs> right on cue. Good job. Pew pew, finger guns. <laughs> <laughs>